So this morning, uh, Dave has asked me to preach on the topic. It's not an expository message. I'm not, I don't have one text I'm going from. I did last night. spoke from Psalm 24. Um, this, is a, this is a broad topic, and I think it's going to be handled best by going to a number of different scriptures. Uh, this is the title of the message. It's kind of long. Let, let the people be glad. Worshiping God, mind, soul, and body. <laughs> what comes to your mind? Last night I shared a quote from A.W. Tozer. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you? This morning I want to start off by saying what comes to your mind when you hear the word worship says a lot about you. Just that word, Worship. And when some people hear that word, they think of a massive arena being led by a, a band. Some people think of sincere singing accompanied by a piano or an organ. Some people think of this humble intimacy with God as they're singing. That's worship. You know, we, we sang three songs and then I worshipped. You may not think of singing at all when you hear the word worship. And actually, that's more biblical. Because the words for worship in the Bible are rarely associated with singing. More has to do with an attitude of humble reverence towards God in all of life. So, whatever you you think of when you hear the word worship, I, I want to maybe expand our thinking a little bit or clarify our thinking, uh, especially as to what it means when we gather to, to worship the Lord. We translate a, a number of Hebrew and Greek words in Scripture as worship. Uh, taken together, those words communicate a response to God's self-revelation that combine different attitudes and actions characterized by reverence, submission, service, awe, praise, gratefulness, trust, and love. All those words are, are contained in the words that the Bible uses for worship. And one passage from Deuteronomy 10 uh, kind of gives that feel. This is, this is Moses uh, reminding the Israelites what God desires of them, what, not, what God wants from them. He wants our worship. But what does that mean? What does that look like? So he says in Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13, And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And that word serve can also be translated worship. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. So all of those things are relevant to the way we relate to God, fearing Him, walking in His ways, loving Him, serving Him with all our heart and soul, keeping His commandments and statutes. All of that is worship. And then we have this in Romans 12, 1 in the New Testament. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So it's not just... What we do here, it's, it's all of life. And then we have 1 Corinthians 10.31, 1 
So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What's certain about all the words related to worship is this. God doesn't want to be worshipped only with our minds or only with our souls and emotions or only with our bodies. He wants all of it. One person said, worship is all of me responding to all who God has revealed himself to be. Responding to all of who God has revealed himself to be. All of me responding to all of who God has revealed himself to me. So I want to spend time this morning talking about worshiping God as it involves our minds, our souls, and our bodies. Now I'm going to focus on what we do when when we meet as God's people, as the church of Jesus Christ. The reason I'm focusing on that, because in the Old Testament, what the Israelites did when they gathered was meant to both reflect and shape the way they lived their lives. And the same is true of us. What we do when we meet as Christians is meant to reflect what we do, flow out of what we do in our daily lives, as well as affect what we do in our daily lives. So there's a connection, there's there's a God-given connection between what we do on Sunday mornings and what we do with the rest of life. So first we're going to look at worshiping God with our minds, then we're going to look at worshiping God with our souls, then we're going to spend a good bit of time on worshiping God with our bodies, because that's probably the area that many Christians are either concerned about, confused about, uh, or don't have a clue about. Uh, So we're going to take a little time there. So before we get into it, let's pray. And ask God's help. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people. What a privilege. What a joy. What, it is, what a joy it is for me to be halfway around the world and, and to find your saints, find your children, those who love you with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to fellowship with them. That is a joy. We pray that you'd open our hearts to hear you this morning. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Give us clarity. May we know your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might love you, mind, soul, and body, with all our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first, worshiping God with our minds. Once heard a speaker at a conference invite us to shout out the name of our denomination. This is in the States. There are a lot of denominations in the States. And and what you heard was this, this this kind of indistinct roar, because there were so many denominations represented there. He then asked us to say the name of the head of the church together on cue. And so he said, one, two, three, and everybody called out, Jesus! And then he said, see, doctrine divides us. Jesus unites us. Bad conclusion. He wasn't the first person in history to pit doctrine and theology against true knowledge of God, and he won't be the last. They aren't meant to be pitted against one another. To be clear, Knowing information about God is different from actually knowing Him through that information. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, 39 and 40, 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In other words, the the religious leaders of Jesus' day had a lot of knowledge about the scriptures. But they did not know the one to whom they pointed. And Jesus rebuked them for it. So there is a difference between doctrine about God and devotion to God. They're distinct. But the fact that they are distinct doesn't mean they aren't connected and shouldn't be connected. God reveals himself to us through the truth. And if we love God, we'll want to know him better. We'll want to find out what he's really like and not be content with impressions. I think he's like this. I remember in college, we used to sit around talking about who we thought God was. I think he's like this. I think, I don't know. I think he's like, who cares what we think? God has revealed himself to us. And he is a certain way and not other ways. And so we want to know him. And that takes using our minds. A man named Michael Horton, in his book, A Better Way, wrote this. Vagueness about the object of our praise inevitably leads to making our own praise the object. Praise, therefore, becomes an end in itself, and we are caught up in our own worship experience rather than in the God whose character and acts are the only proper focus. As Christians, God calls us not only to love Him, but to love the truth about Him. 2 Thessalonians 2.10, we are those who love the truth. John 17.3, this is eternal life. Not having an experience about God, but knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one he has sent. We worship the one who is the truth, John 14, 6 says, and who claimed that the truth would set us free. God wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth, and he reveals his wrath against those who suppress the truth. Jesus said he would send the spirit of truth, right? And ask God to sanctify his disciples in the truth, which is his word. God is all about truth, knowledge, reality, and we should be too. The better, that is, the more accurately we know who God is through his word, the more genuine our worship will be. That's why when we gather to worship God, we must engage our minds. Some people think of worship as leaving your thinking behind and just having some emotional experience. That is not worship. That's an emotional experience, which is different from actually knowing God, encountering Him, knowing who He is valuing it, declaring it, articulating it, understanding the truth about God, who He is, especially what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. Those things matter, which means if we want to be worshipers of God, we will want to know His Word. We will want to spend time in His Word. And the longer I've lived, the more I've sought to be more in the Word of God. As I look back on my life, I wish I had spent more time in the Word early on. Not out of duty, not out of a sense of, well, you have to, but because that's how we know God. He's revealed Himself to us. He's shown us in His Word. He said, this is what I'm like. This is what I think. 
These are my promises. These, th- these are the things that I've done. These are the things I'm going to do. It's all right here. And through the help of the Holy Spirit, we can know the God who created us as we read him, read about him in the pages of Scripture. So worshiping God requires our minds. John Stott had said this, What then does it mean to worship God? It is to glory in his holy name. That is, to revel adoringly in who he is in his revealed character. But before we can glory in God's name, we must know it. Hence the propriety of the reading and preaching of the word of God in public worship and of biblical meditation in private devotion. These things are not an intrusion into worship. You know, this morning between two songs, I read a long passage of scripture. It's not like, oh, can't we get back to worship? Why do we need to read the Bible? No, that is worship. Reading the Bible is worship for reading it to glorify God. These things are not an intrusion to worship. They form the necessary foundation of it. God must speak to us before we have any liberty to speak to Him. So, worshiping God, whether it's done in a meeting or outside a meeting, it engages our minds. It must involve our minds. Don't have to be really smart. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be academically gifted, but you do have to use your mind. We do have to think. So, worshiping God involves our minds. Second, worshiping God involves our souls. What do we do with the truth about God? Is the goal just to know more and more facts about God? Like to create long lists about like the names of God and the history of God and what He's done and to know all the names in the Bible? Is that the goal? No, that's not the goal. More specifically, what, what should we do more than just understand God with our minds? We're to respond to it will respond to that knowledge with our souls. Psalm 103, verse 1 and 2, says this, Bless the Lord, O my... This is a, like a question and answer. Bless the Lord, O my... Yes, that's right. It's very good. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. All that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. You see the soul and the mind working together there. Forget not all his benefits. We need our minds, but we need to be blessing him with our souls. Craig Dictionary of the Bible and Theology defines soul as the seat of the emotions, our desires, passions, and experiences. Scripture says we're to pour out our souls to God. Psalm 42.4. We're to lift up our souls to Him. Psalm 25.1. We're to love Him with our souls. Deuteronomy 6.5. We're to boast in Him with our souls. Psalm 34.2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. You see, it's one thing to know and declare truth about God. The devil can do that. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the demons know there's one God. Doesn't help them. And knowing things in itself won't help us. God intends us to cherish and treasure the truth about Him because He wants us to cherish and treasure Him. Psalm 37.4 is a command. It tells, God tells us, delight yourself in the Lord. 
delight yourself in the Lord. We delight ourselves in a lot of things. You know, we delight ourselves in sports. We delight ourselves in good food. Delight ourselves in chocolate. Delight ourselves in maybe a trip to the countryside. We delight ourselves in cars, maybe. We delight ourselves in a nice home. There are all kinds of things we can delight ourselves in. God says this, delight yourself in me. Be delighted in me. Find joy in me. Find satisfaction in me. I love how Peter describes it. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. He's talking about our relationship with Christ. He says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What does that look like? What does that look like for you? What does joy look like for you? Are you ever happy? If you're not ever happy, then you need to remind yourself of the good news of the gospel. That God sent Jesus to pay for all your sins and they are all forgiven and you are his beloved and dearly loved child forever. That will make you happy. But when most of us will be happy at different points, what, what are the things that make us happy? What are the things that fill us with joy? Well, Peter says that what should fill us with inexpressible joy is knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. This is what Paul's communicating in Ephesians 5:19 when he says that we're to sing and make melody to the Lord with all our hearts. We're to sing and make melody to the Lord with our hearts. Doesn't mean we don't use our voices. Doesn't mean we just come together and just what are you doing? Making melody in my heart. So odd. No, that's not what he's saying. It, what he's saying is that singing is intended to be an overflow of our hearts. What's going on in here? God takes no pleasure in worship that isn't connected to the heart. Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 8, in rebuking the Pharisees, He says, This people, and this is a quote from Isaiah, This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. We don't want to be those people. If we name the name of Christ, we don't want to be those people where we, we say things that are true and say things that are good, but our hearts are from Him, far from Him. Now, now, there can be some misunderstanding on this point. What, what this is not saying is that Christians just walk around with overflowingly jubilant hearts all the time. And that when we come together as God's people, it, I just can hardly contain myself. I have to sing. <gasps> now, it's good. It's okay to be like that. But that's not the way we are. We, we live in a fallen world. We fight with the flesh. We fight the world. We, we, we fight the devil. You know, there, there's battles going on. And we can come in feeling distant from God. That's okay. There are times when our souls are not lining up with what we know. And John Piper shares some helpful thoughts on this topic. He says, This does not mean that worship is authentic only when you are red hot for God. It can mean, now listen, this is, this is so important. 
Because some of us just, just reject this idea out of hand because we're not red hot for God all the time. And you know, when someone says, your soul needs to be engaged with God when we worship Him, well, you know, that's just not reality. It can mean that when you are not red hot, your heart feels a longing for the passion that you once knew or want to know more of. That longing offered to God is also worship. In other words, when my heart feels cold, I can still, in my soul, want it to be warmed. And that is an act of worship. To come to God and say, God, please change me. I feel cold. I feel distant. I don't feel anything. I I want to love you from my heart. That's worship. That's good. Not what's good is, what's not good is to say, well, I don't feel anything for God, so I'm just not going to worship him at all. He's worthy of worship whether you feel like it or not. But the reality is, he wants us to feel like it. That's what worshiping God from our souls is talking about. So Piper goes on to say, it can mean remorse, that even the longing is gone, and you're scarcely able to feel anything but sadness, that you don't feel what you should. That remorse offered to God is also worship. So we can, be at the, we can get to the point where, where we think, I don't even want to want to worship God. Well, you can be sad about that. That we don't even want to want to worship God. That remorse, that sadness can be worshipped as well. It says to God that He is the only hope for what you need. So don't have an all or nothing attitude about worship. The heart can be real, even if it is not as inflamed with zeal as it ought to be which it never is in this life. That's true. So bottom line, God never intended for our worship of Him to be confined to a merely academic or intellectual activity. Where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. And for some of us, this, is, this could be a life-transforming point. Because we all feel in our souls. We all have emotions. And a lot of times our emotions are out of line. They're, they're dysfunctional. We don't react rightly to, the, to different things. God will help us. Because what God wants us to be is people who are most inflamed with passion for Him. Because no one is worthy, as worthy of our affections than God Himself. So we worship God with our minds, we worship God with our souls, and then we're to worship God with our bodies. I think most of us are on board with worshiping God with our minds and souls. Problems come when we start talking about our bodies, and I've had numerous conversations with individuals from Australia, from Sydney particularly, about some of the dynamics of the Christian culture here. So I'm just happy to be here on Australian soil sharing this t- on this topic. Because I think there's a lot of confusion. Problems come for many Christians when we start talking about our bodies. And these are the questions that arise. So what's the place of expressiveness in our public worship? Does God even care about what we do with our bodies? If He does, How should we respond? Those are some of the questions I'm going to hope to answer in the next few minutes from the Word of God. To be clear, 
And I want to be clear, what's going on in our hearts is more important than what's going on in our bodies. Whether or not we're obeying God in our daily lives matters more than any particular physical expression when we gather. Singing rich doctrinal truths in a physically conservative congregation is superior to jumping around in a lively congregation belting out shallow man-centered songs. Still, I want to make the case that we shouldn't have to make the choice between worshiping God with our minds and souls and worshiping God with our bodies, that they're meant to go together. So, we look at four things. The evidences, biblical evidences for physical expression, the benefits, the limitations, and the hindrances. First, biblical evidence for physical expressiveness. Does God even care about this topic? Well, he seems to. While worship is always first and foremost a matter of our hearts, biblically it's never unrelated to what we do with our bodies. That's both inside and outside meetings. The Greek and Hebrew words we most often translate worship, hishtachava in the Hebrew and proskuneo in the Greek, both have some reference to physical action, bowing down or bending over. It's a gesture that communicates an attitude of grateful submission from the heart, homage or praise used to describe the attitude of honor that an inferior holds towards a superior. But it's not just standing there thinking about it. It's doing something about it. It's, it's bowing down. It's, it's bending over. Other prominent worship words, abad in Hebrew and doulos in Greek, refer to acts of service. So a lot of times, some Bibles translate doulos or abad, serve, and others will translate it worship. Some Hebrew, praise for, Hebrew words for praise infer movement, like todah, throwing forth the hands, which is a common uh, means of expressing thanks, and barak, which is, uh, is for kneeling. All these words point to the fact that if we love God with our heart and soul, mind and strength, it will somehow be reflected in our bodies. We are not simply spirits. We have bodies. And God made those bodies in the Garden of Eden, and he said it was very good. So so we're not Gnostics who, who deny the goodness of the material world. God's given us bodies for a purpose, for a reason. And that reason is to bring him glory. Scriptural examples of bodily expression all, all over scripture. You have in Exodus 4.31 when Moses comes back and, and tells the Israelites that God has heard their prayer. They bow down in worship. Exodus 15, after coming through the Red Sea, God has delivered Israelite from the Egyptians. They're dancing, they're singing. It's a celebration. Nehemiah 8 6 through 9, when the word of God is being proclaimed, people are standing, they're lifting hands, they're bowing, they're weeping. And these are just spontaneous expressions. No one's saying, okay, do this now. All right, we're going to, okay, everybody get in line. We're going to do this dance thing for, you know, because we just got through the Red Sea and just we want to have something here. So you guys get over here. It was just the natural expression. They could not contain it. And I doubt if any of us could either. That was what had just happened. But we've had something even greater happen. We've been delivered from sin through Jesus Christ. The Psalms often refer to physical expression. Psalm, I'm, I hope you're getting all these scriptures. I will probably post this online at some point. 
Psalm 30, 11 and 12. David says, You have turned for me in my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory, could also be translated my whole being, may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. He's, he's enthused. He's excited. Psalm 5, verse 7. These are just scriptural examples of physical expression. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Psalm 63, verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. And we have the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, 25. An unbeliever comes into a meeting of Christians. He bows down and says, God is surely among you. He can't help it. Wow, God's here. I've got to do something. I can't just stand there. So he bows down. Ephesians 3.14, Paul kneels before the Father to pray for the Ephesians. In Revelations 1.17, John falls down before Jesus. Numerous scriptural, scriptural commands for physical expression. We have singing. Sing to the Lord, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises in Psalm 47, 6. Kneeling in Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Lifting hands to bless. Come, bless the Lord, you servants of the Lord. Lift your hands. Lifting hands in prayer, 1 Timothy 2, 8. I want all men everywhere to lift their hands in prayer, holy hands in prayer. Bowing, Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Clapping, Psalm 47, 1. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shouting, Psalm 33, 1. Playing instruments in Psalm 150, kind of every instrument imaginable, being brought together to give praise to God. Dancing in Psalm 149, verse 3. Standing in awe, Psalm 33, verse 8. Now, the thing we want to note is that these commands cover a wide range of emotional expression. It's not all about celebration. It's about awe. It's about fearing God. It's about lament. It's about repentance. All are related to some physical expression of, of what we're experiencing in our hearts. Now, the question is, are all these commands commands of God to be obeyed at all times by all of God's people. So if, you know, the Bible says lift your hands, am I sinning if I don't lift my hands? You have been asked this question. Well, the answer is no and yes. No, we're not in sin if we don't lift our hands at a particular moment. But yes, there is something out of the heart, something of the heart behind these actions and commands that God wants us to apply in our culture in a way that magnifies His glory. So this means more than simply telling people, well, you just interpret these scriptural commands for physical expressiveness in any way you feel comfortable. I think we have to move beyond that because we hold back in, in physical expressiveness towards God for a lot of reasons that aren't all good. Sometimes it's laziness. Sometimes it's fear of man. Sometimes it's other idolatries. And we're going to look at some of those a little bit later. Also, 
many different cultures can exist in, in each culture. And in many ways, the church is called to be countercultural. So, you know, I've been in England, I've been in Italy, I've been in India, I've been in Australia, uh, talked to people who've been to other places, you know, and we all have our reasons. Well, my culture, well, my culture, well, my culture. You know, this is the church, not our culture. The church is a new culture. We are the kingdom of God. We are, we, we are a royal nation, a holy priesthood, a people belonging to God. So there may be times when we actually act differently than our culture. And there should be times when we do that. So I think the question needs to be, do our minds, hearts, and bodies reflect the overall biblical model for how we're to respond to the greatness and goodness of God? Because that's our focus. Our focus is not our minds or our souls or our bodies. Our focus is the goodness and greatness of God. So let me, let me those are some of the scriptural examples of, of physical expression. Let me talk about some of the benefits of physical expression. First, we magnify the glory of God. We make it big in people's eyes. When I'm with my wife, and I wish I were right now, uh, I want others to know how I feel about her. If, if we're on a date night, and we take a date night every Monday night, um, and if I'm sitting across the table from her, and my eyes are glazed over, I'm distracted, let me check, look at my iPhone, looking depressed. If someone comes by and looks at us and sees us, maybe a friend comes up, they're going to be asking me some questions. They're going to be saying, are you okay? Are you guys okay? Because you look horrible. And are you guys having a fight? Or Why are they asking that? And I haven't said a word. Why are they asking that? Because my body is telling them something. It's saying that I'm really not into this. Uh, I'm really not enjoying this. I really wish I was doing something else. And you know what? I want people to know that I love my wife. So I look at her. I hug her. I touch her. I smile at her. I engage her in conversation. And I magnify her worth through my physical expressiveness. If you hang around me and my wife, you'll know that I love her. And I won't have to tell you. Because I do. I do love her. Just separated 35 years last August of the best 35 years of my life. And it only gets better. But I don't keep that inside. I want people to know she's a really amazing woman. And I can barely talk about her without getting excited. Because she is an amazing woman and I want People to know it because that's who she is. I magnify her worth through my physical expressiveness. So we magnify the worth of God through our bodies. We say to those around us, my God is so great, I'm going to praise him with my whole being. Psalm 108, verse 1 and 2, implies that kind of attitude. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being, not just my mouth, not just my lips. 
I will sing and make melody with all my being. I want every part of me to be praising God. Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. So we magnify the glory of God through physical expression. We also follow the scriptural example. There are many actions we might think will honor God in corporate worship, but the ones I read to you early, earlier, singing, kneeling, lifting hands to bless, bowing, clapping, shouting, those are examples and commands from God Himself. He says, these things will bless me. These things will magnify my worth. These things will magnify my glory. Oh, but God, I don't feel like doing that. It's okay. I'm worthy. I'm worthy of it. I just, you didn't make me that way. I didn't? Pretty sure I did. God knows. He knows how He made us. He knows why He made us. He says, these things honor me. We encourage others through our physical expressiveness. At least we can. You know, as someone who's been leading corporate song, congregational song for 30 years or so, I can tell you, it's great to look out, and look out and see people who, with their bodies, are saying God is great. And it's not as encouraging, and I haven't, it's not been my experience here, just so you know, it's not as encouraging to look out on a group of people whose countenances don't tell you that God's great. Their countenances tell you that God must not be very important, and He certainly doesn't make people happy, because that's what the countenances are saying. Countenance is your face. It's the look on your face. Psalm 34, 5 says, Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. Radiant. You know what radiant is? It glows. It lights up the room. And if we're looking to Him, our faces should be radiant. So we can encourage others. It's one of the reasons when I'm in a congregation singing, I'll look around. At, at people singing. Because I want to be encouraged. And I see someone just singing their heart out. And it's just, oh yes, this is true. This person is giving, you know, I know the struggles they're going through. I know their spouse just left them. I know that they just found out they had a disease. I know that they're having problems with their kids. But look at the passion that they're magnifying God with. So that's an encouragement. We can encourage others. We can encourage our own hearts through physical expressiveness. Expressing devotion to God physically can stir up affection in my heart. I raise my hands because God is worthy to be exalted. I kneel at times because I'm completely dependent on God for mercy, sustenance, and wisdom. Sometimes I'll even move my feet with joy because my greatest problem, my separation from God, has been solved. And I no longer fear the wrath of God. I'm a recipient of His love forever in Jesus Christ. That makes me happy. Now, is this hypocrisy to, to, to do something physically when your heart's not fully into it? Well, no. Hypocrisy is seeking to give other people a false impression of our spirituality. It's saying... I'm doing this because I want you to think I'm really godly. I'm really spiritual. That's hypocrisy. But saying, God, you are worthy of praise. And I'm, I'm lifting my hands right now to say it, that you're worthy. Because this is one of the ways you've given me to do that. That's not hypocrisy. 
Well, how about this? Is it emotionalism? Kind of a shortcut to stir affections without engaging the mind. Just kind of just be emotional. We just come together to be emotional. No, it's not that. Emotionalism takes place when it doesn't matter to us what causes those emotions. It matters very much to us what causes our emotions. And when we gather as God's people, what should stir our emotions is fresh views of God's glory in Christ and His mercy to us in Jesus. That's what should stir our emotions. That is not emotionalism. That is being rightly emotional. I mentioned that Julie and I uh, go out on a date every Monday night. Well, suppose I told you that um, you know, for the next month or so, I was going on a date night and really looking forward to it, but Julie wasn't coming. I just like date nights. I just like going out to eat, going to a movie sometimes, and just kind of walking around with myself. And it just makes me really happy. Now, wouldn't you suspect there's some problem there? That's emotionalism. I don't care what the object is. I just want to be happy. No, it's not the same. I go on a date night because I love to be with my wife. She's the object of my attention and my affection. So when we gather as God's people, Jesus Christ is the object of our affection and attention. And if we respond to views of Him with emotion, that is right and good and biblical and God-honoring. So that's not emotionalism. Don't confuse the two. We don't want to confuse the two. Now when we lack affection for God, we should acknowledge our lack of desire for God as evidence of our innate sinfulness and begin to fill our minds with thoughts about His kindness and His mercy and His goodness and His faithfulness and His sovereignty. And over time, we will begin to see those thoughts take root in our heart and we want to respond naturally. None other than John Calvin said this about expressing physical actions even when we don't feel like it and how physical actions can help us. He says, The inward attitude certainly holds first place in prayer, but outward signs like kneeling, uncovering the head, lifting up the hands, have a twofold use. The first is that we may employ all our members for the glory and worship of God. So with our whole being, we're worshiping God. Secondly, that we are, so to speak, jolted out of our laziness by this help. I love this. There's also a third use in solemn and public prayer because in this way the sons of God profess their piety and they inflame each other with reverence of God. But just as the lifting up of the hands is a symbol of confidence and longing, so in order to show our humility we fall down on our knees. So he's saying what, what I've been saying, which is, I'm, you know, I don't mind being linked up with John Calvin on a lot of things. Um, he's saying that when we express things physically, it encourages our own souls and it can encourage those around us. All right, let me take a little bit of time to talk about the limitations of physical expression. It's not all good. Physical expression doesn't ensure that worship is taking place in my heart. Jesus again says in 15, Matthew 15, 8 and 9, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Sometimes people refer to someone as a real worshiper. Susie's a real worshiper. 
And, and what we're meaning is just that they're, ex- they're an expressive singer. We don't know if she's a worshiper or not. She just like moves her body a lot. That doesn't mean she's a worshiper. Only God knows if we're truly worshiping Him. Christians can exhibit little physical expression on Sundays, but have a profound love for the Savior and live a godly life and have a deep knowledge of Scripture. So physical expression doesn't tell us everything. Physical expressions can be self-deceiving. Here's another limitation. People have been exuberant in corporate worship while living in adultery, cheating on their taxes and serving the God of money. But they're all about using their bodies in worship. A genuine response to God can't be measured by raised hands, dancing feet, and loud shouts. We might just be caught up in the enthusiasm of a large crowd. I remember the first time I ever lifted my hands in a public meeting. It was, a, it was a, an event, an outside event, where they brought bands in and speakers. and It's called Fishnet. And this was back in the 70s. And I just remember looking around and seeing all these people lifting their hands. I thought, well... I, I should do that. So, so I was standing there and I just, you know, I thought, I mean, I can lift my hands. It's really not hard. But that moment, it felt like I had 50-pound bags in each hand. And it just, it was like this. And I mean, so I think, I think it's the farthest I got was like here. You know, about waist level. And it was so hard. Why was it so hard? Well, I was just doing it because everybody else was doing it. There's no grace in that. There's not, you know, there's the, God's not saying, yeah, it's just, I, just, I just like it when people raise their hands. I just, that, I just enjoy that. No, he's not saying that. Naturally, a lot of people raise their hands. At a sporting event, when your team wins, people don't just stand there. Oh, we won. Okay. Don't raise your hands. Okay. And no one's teaching people. We won. What should I do? What should I do? Raise your hands. Okay. <laughs> right? It's just silly. It's a natural expression. Why? Because something has transpired that means something to you. And I would say that a lot of times Christians are not physically expressive because we haven't understood what's, been, what's happened. What's happening doesn't mean anything to us. This is what's happened. You were condemned to hell. And God rescued you. If you're a Christian. He saved you. He delivered you from His righteous wrath through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest news the world's ever heard. It's the greatest news the world will ever hear. It's the centerpiece of history. And you have been a recipient of it. Is that not great news? I mean, what do we say? Is that it? Is that the great news? Is that all you got? Uh, well, yeah, that's all I got. I'm sorry. That's all I got. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to save you, to redeem you, so that you can enjoy pleasures at the Father's right hand forever. It's amazing. It's amazing. All right. Uh, let's see. Finally, physical expressiveness can be self-glorifying and self-gratifying. People, people can use physical expressiveness as a way of drawing attention to themselves. Look how spiritual I am. Look how godly I am. And I want to say, look how self-focused you are. You know, it, it's, it's not to draw attention to ourselves. So, those, those are limitations. 
let me close with talking about some of the hindrances. I think sometimes there's a lack of clear biblical instruction on this topic, which is why we're going through this this morning. It's a topic Christians often avoid. We just feel uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about it. Fear of man can be a, a hindrance. Now, fear of man can be hard to detect because we, we grow so comfortable in our practices and our traditions. Um, but here's some signs that fear of man is present. You're convinced that you should change, but you don't do anything. You don't follow through on it. Or you're more mindful of what others are thinking than what God is thinking. Or you think, with how, you think about how little you can get by with rather than how worthy God is. Those would be all evidences that there might be fear of man in your heart. More concerned for what people think. I read an article years ago called Dance of the Godstruck by a man named Mark Buchanan. He said this, God is not the safekeeper of our reputations. God is not some priggish domestic deity, a heavenly mismanners, intent on prescribing the etiquette that maintains polite society, aghast by any outbursts of fervor. And our role on this earth, be it prophet, king, priest, or homemaker, is not to keep ourselves from embarrassment. He was, he was talking about when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem and was dancing, and Mike, uh, his wife thought it was so inappropriate. We must come before the king, dignified or undignified, robed or disrobed, in the presence of the elite or in the company of the slave girls, and worship with all our might. Because God is worthy. So fear of man can be a limitation. A hindrance, rather. Tradition or culture can be a hindrance. Tradition and culture shouldn't be quickly dismissed, but they should be tested against Scripture. A, tradi- a tradition without faith is a dead work. And we can actually use our culture to justify our disobedience, our laziness, our lack of understanding, or even a craving for people's respect. See, when it comes down to it, I want to be more identified with the fact that I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God than I'm a citizen of the United States or a citizen of Australia or a citizen of Great Britain or wherever. Theological concerns. I want to address these briefly. Um, another kindred's. You know, some people say, well, well, doesn't it say in Hebrews 12, 28 that we're to worship God with reverence and awe? And yes, it does say that. And the word is latruo, which is one of the New Testament words we translate worship. It has to do with service. And it may very well be that that passage is referring to what comes after it, where the writer refers to loving others, showing hospitality, remembering the imprisoned, honoring marriage. In other words, show reverence and fear of God in all your life, in the way you live. But even if it does refer just to a meeting, can't bowing down and lifting hands be a sign of reverence and awe before God? I think think they can be. And we can't ignore scriptures that emphasize celebration, delight, and exuberance as a way of magnifying the worth of God. Here's another theological concern. Well, doesn't 1 Corinthians 14.40 say all things should be done decently and in order? Yes, 1 Corinthians 14.40 does say that. But there's no contradiction. Paul's referring to everything taking place in the meeting in an orderly way. And it's helpful to realize that in the preceding verse, he's encouraging both prophecy and speaking in tongues. And then he says, but, but make sure everything's done decently and in order. 
So there's not a contradiction. So if, if, if you still have questions, I, I, I want to ask these questions to you. Assuming that God wants to exalt him with our bodies, what physical expressions of praise in Scripture do you think are appropriate in corporate worship? How do you distinguish between what's appropriate and what's not? If we're to sing, well, why not shout? Because in a lot of scriptures, they're, they're connected. Sing, shout. There's not like a dividing line. They're, they're just right together. Psalm 71 verse 23 does that. Can physical expressiveness be learned? I think it can be. I mean, I know. I know it can be learned because the first time I tried to raise my hands, it was, uh, and now it's just, you know, I do it as naturally as I would in any other situation. If physical expressiveness is primarily cultural, when are Christians called to be countercultural because of the greatness of the God we worship? And are there any physical expressions of worship modeled or commanded in the Bible that you've never engaged in? And if so, why not? Just a few questions. One last hindrance is a concern for others. And this is legitimate. We don't want to distract people. We don't want to you know, do things that are going to be you know, a problem for people. Our expressions of praise and worship to God should be appropriate for our context. I lead... Uh, singing at an event back in the States called Together for the Gospel. It's a gathering of thousands of pastors, primarily, and it's just me on the piano and and everybody singing. It's a more conservative crowd than I would typically lead. So in that context, uh, I'm still exuberant. I don't... uh, uh, Well, I'm sitting at a piano, so I can't move my feet. Um, But... I'm aware that those who could be distracted by what I do, so I do pull it back just a little bit, but I want the joy to come through. No one should question whether or not we're moved by the God whose glory we're seeking to exalt. People should have no question about that. And I know that's the culture that you're seeking to build here at Sovereign Grace Church, for those of you who are members here. We want someone to come into this room and see these people have encountered something that I have not encountered. And one of the ways they'll see that is as we worship God, mind, soul, and body. So this is what it looks like. It kind of looks like what we've been doing this morning, but I know there's, there's people at different, we're at different stages. As we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Some of us might raise our hands to thank God that this is really true. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that God's plan for us cannot be thwarted. Yes, that's good news. As we sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Someone might fall to their knees. Just amazed at the mercy of God. Adoring God that all their sins have been paid in full. After singing, crown him, ye kings, with many crowns, for he is king of all. We might hear joyful shouts of praise and acclamation, proclaiming, you are the king, you are the worthy one. You know, our songs, our voices, our singing, our responses don't need to end when the song ends. There can be something called an overflow out of the heart. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll just erupt into spontaneous applause. Not, hey, great job, band. That was really great. We're not doing that. What we were saying is, 
God, these words have stirred up passion in my heart and I want to praise you. I want to thank you. You are great. You are glorious. You know, you see this at, again, sporting events. People are yelling out things. Sometimes they're not very good. But they're yelling out things because there's so much passion there and they care so much. Don't you think that we as Christians, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, should care about what God has done and want to proclaim His glory? It will look different at different times, in different churches, and in different cultures. But there's no question that as those who have been redeemed for the glory of God, that God wants us to reserve our deepest and strongest and purest affections for Him. And that worshiping Him with our mind and our soul and our body is the very reason we were created. And that's good news. So we can't end without singing a song, which is what we're going to do. And I'm going to pray. And I want to encourage you, as we say, we're going to sing Come Praise and Glorify, which we sang earlier. If you've never lifted your hands, don't think about lifting your hands. Think about what we're singing. Think about who we're singing to. And think about, well, is that a way I could give Him glory? Come praise and glorify. If, if you've just always stood there, you know, it's this kind of lilting song, come praise and glory. Just, just be asking, how can I communicate with my body the greatness of this God we worship? So Father, we thank You that You've given us minds, You've given us souls, You've given us bodies to proclaim this great news that Jesus Christ has come to redeem a people for Himself that we had no hope. We were without you, without hope in the world. But Jesus came and he lived a perfect life that we could never live, perfect obedience. He died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. He became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, righteousness of God. And through him we are forgiven. Through him we are set free from our fear of slavery, fear of death, Fear of the devil, fear of the grave, fear of hell, fear of condemnation. We are set free. And so may our minds and our souls and bodies bring glory to you for who you are and for all you've done. In Jesus' name.